0: If you have your Bibles, please join me in the book of 1 Thessalonians, the New Testament book of 1 Thessalonians in chapter 4. While you're finding your place there, I want to just give a huge thanks to everyone who volunteered their time and their energy to help with some of the demolition out there in the north entrance and with some of the painting. It's really starting to take shape, and um, I know that uh, the carpet's supposed to go in this week, so uh, if you think it looks different now, come back next week and you'll see uh, some, some more huge changes out there. It's really looking nice. The title of today's message, and you know, we've, we've, we've been working through this series now, this is the sixth week, and sixth and final week in our series, Getting Cozy with Sin, and the title of today's message is Getting Cozy with Lust, and some people have said, uh, boy, Pastor, some of these messages have really made me feel uncomfortable. Well, we're only just getting started, so uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and uh, in, this, in this book, the Apostle Paul is dealing with several issues that the, the Christians in Thessalonica are wrestling with. One huge one had to do with their, their issue with regards to the end times and waiting for the return of Christ. And he deals with that issue. But one of the things that he has to address is their sexual purity. And making sure that their behavior lines up with what God's Word has to say. And so if you found your place in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4... I invite you to follow along as we read the first eight verses. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you have received from us how you ought to walk to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress or wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger of all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives His Holy Spirit to you. Each of these weeks in this sermon series, we've talked about different areas of our of our Christian life where we may be tempted to allow sin to creep in and and we be okay or or comfortable with those things. We've talked about things like like worry and irritability and and gluttony, uh, areas of our Christian life where God doesn't want us to permit these things, but maybe we have. And today we want to talk about this area of sexual immorality. Paul was writing to a group of people who lived in a culture that was much like ours, that was very promiscuous, that permitted a lot of behavior and things that that God said were not okay. It wasn't all that uncommon for men in the Greek culture to have a wife who was to bear them children. They might have another mistress on the side. And then furthermore, they even may have a, a young teenager that they kept on the side as a, as a regular prostitute in their life. This, this, this kind of sexual immorality was, was rampant in their culture. And Paul knew that there was a danger of it creeping into the church's uh, existence, into the lives of the believers. And he says, he says, you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Listen, I've already talked to you about some of these things, but you need to be reminded, as we do as well. And so his challenge in verse 3 is is to abstain from sexual immorality. And if you have your notes and you want to fill in some blanks as we go along, we're going to talk about several things that will happen when you follow God's plan for this area of your life, when you abstain from sexual immorality. The first thing he says is in verse 3, you will fulfill God's will for your life. When you abstain from sexual immorality, you fulfill God's will for your life. Look at verse 3. He says, This is the will of God. Our ears ought to perk up because there's a lot of us who think, I wonder what God's will for my life is. I wonder what God wants me to do. Uh, Teenagers and young people often ask this question when they're thinking about college and then maybe later on marriage. But even as we get older, we still ask this question. How many kids should I have? Where should I work? What should I do in this situation? I need to know God's will for my life. Sometimes God is not always clear about the particular details of that will like we would like him to be. But here is one thing we can know for certain with regards to God's will. It's very plain and clear in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is the will of God, your sanctification. God's will for your life is that you experience sanctification. Now that's one of those big words that we need to make sure we understand what we're talking about here. Sanctification is simply that process where we become more like Jesus Christ. When our lives become more and more holy. There's an ancient statement about sanctification that puts it a little more technically, but it says, it's the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. That's just another way of saying is that God's will for you and me is that our lives have less and less sin and more and more Jesus. Jesus. That's God's will for your life and for mine. And he explains what that means. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. God's will is for us to have lives that are not allowing, um, allowing sexual sins into our life that God has prohibited. That, that Greek word that's translated in most of our Bibles as sexual immorality is the Greek word pornia. It's obviously where we get our English word pornography from, but it, 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 it's a very broad term, and it includes anything that's, that's prohibited by God, just, just like with so many of God's good gifts, that in and of themselves they aren't wrong. God, God created this wonderful union that it was supposed to be for, for man and woman, husbands and wives, to be able to enjoy, and yet we, we often take God's good gifts, and we use them in ways that God didn't intend. And so he says, listen, anything that's outside the bounds of what I have said and how I have said for this to function is is off limits for you. And so his his clear intention is is for the sexual union to remain within the marriage covenant. And that marriage covenant is for a, a man and a woman to come together and enjoy that gift from God. Anything outside of that would fall into this word pornea, whether that's, whether that's pornography itself, whether that's adultery, whether that's sex before marriage or outside of marriage. Uh, God says, listen, here's, here's my gift to you. Here's where and how you are to use it. And outside of that, we'll knock it off. If you're a Christian, this should not be the way that you're living. And so he says, this is, this is my will for you. That you abstain from sexually immoral behavior. And so when we choose to be obedient to God in this matter, then we are, number one, fulfilling God's will for our life. Secondly, we're also morality. We honor God with our body. The next verse, verse 4, says it kind of expands on His desire, His will for us. And He says that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and in honor. That each one of you know how to control his or her body in holiness and in honor. I remember when our, when our kids were first born, and I still love to watch newborns. You know, their muscles haven't developed, and they're, they're floppy, you know, and it's fun to watch them as they're trying to hold their head, and you kind of lift it up, and it goes back down, and, and their arms flail a little bit, and they whack you while you're holding them. and, and they, Now they hit me, but it's on purpose. Back then, it was, you know, just they didn't have control these these things. Well, God calls us as believers to control our bodies and use them in a way that honor God. In fact, this word that's translated by body in most of our Bible translations, it's literally the word vessel. It means a container. It could be a jar or a pitcher. It was, it, it, he says, use this vessel in the way that it's supposed to be used. I learned early on as a child that my mom did not necessarily appreciate us getting into her cupboards and using her good cookware, her pots and pans, for our little experiments outside. We discovered that she didn't appreciate having toads and snakes and things in in her good stuff. She's like, let me get you a ratty old ice cream pail if you need to mix up some mud soup or something outside. Don't use my good stuff for that sort of thing. That wasn't their proper intended use. The Bible says here that God created our bodies to be used in a certain way. And when they're used outside that bounds, we're we're breaking from God's good design. And he says, listen, you need to know how to control your body or use your vessel in the right way. He says, use it in holiness and in honor. Use your body for the glory of God not the fulfillment of your own lusts thirdly not only do we fulfill god's will for our life not only do we honor god with our body but when we abstain from sexual immorality we also won't be taking our cues from the world you won't take your cues from the world by world, when, when most pastors talk about the world, they're speaking of people who do not believe or practice the, the Word of God. Those who have chosen not to trust Christ, those who have chosen to, to go a different path, these might, might be an atheist, might be someone from other, other, other faiths or religions, or someone who is has chosen not to walk in the path that, that God has laid out. And he says, listen, in verse 4, I don't want you to live in in the, he says, in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. (laughs) It's interesting because he's writing this letter. Now, in the Bible's language, there were were Jews and Gentiles, right? And, And a Gentile was anyone who was not a Jew. He's writing this letter to a predominantly Gentile church, and he says, hey, Gentiles, I don't want you to live like the Gentiles who don't know God you are different you've been called out for a different purpose you're my people now and and you're not to be like the world around you this is a really difficult difficult concept in our culture i don't i don't know if you've noticed but there is a growing disparity between between the lifestyle that god calls us to in the lifestyle and lifestyles that are becoming culturally acceptable and culturally normal it used to be that it, back in you know 100 years ago in our culture that many people's lives even if they didn't go to church regularly and even if they didn't believe the bible that many people's lives still lined up with judeo-christian values that's that's rapidly changing so much so that if you choose to walk in the way that God calls you and I to walk, we are going to look increasingly weird. We are going to stick out more and more. And I'm not talking about some of the weird Christian things that we do, the, maybe the strange ways that, that Christians have dressed in the past or, or goofy Christian phrases, but I'm, I'm talking about straight up just when you choose... To live your life in the way that God calls you to, to live and to take a stance for biblical truth, increasingly, that's going to be narrow minded and odd. And he says, Listen, I don't want you to live in the way that, that people can't distinguish you from the Gentiles around you. That they live, he says, in, in the passion of their lust. That, that Greek word pa- passion is the Greek word pathos, and it's never used positively in the New Testament. It's always used of people who, who, who dive headlong into whatever sinful urges they have, and in in our culture, we use passion in a good way, usually. I mean, it's frequently a word talking about someone who's, who's passionate about, about a hobby, or passionate about art, or passionate about things they love. We use it in a positive way, and, and that's okay, but we need to remember that, that following your passion in the New Testament speak, frequently speaks of people who are, who are following sinful desires, and that's the way Paul's using it here. He says, I don't want you to live in passionate lust like the Gentiles. I want there to be a difference between you and the people in the world around you. We get tempted, though, because we don't want to stick out. We want to be accepted. We want people to like us. We don't want the conversation to center around us. And so it's tempting to accept worldly values. It's tempting to go along with what we see around us. might be tempted to buy into our culture's redefinition of what marriage is we might be tempted to buy into our culture's norm that says it's okay to have a sexual relationship with someone i'm not married to or maybe to move in together before marriage we might be tempted to buy into our culture's acceptance of watching sexually explicit tv shows or movies we might be tempted to buy into our culture's attempt to redefine what it means to be a man or a woman listen I, I, this is not a call for prudishness this is a call for obedience to God's Word, and and to to follow the prescriptions that He has and live in a morally pure way. So when we choose to walk in a way that is honoring to God, we won't be taking our cues from the world. We won't be looking around us and saying, okay, well, I fit in all right. I'm I'm, I'm doing okay because, well, that's how everybody else is living. We take our cues from God's Word. Number four, when we live in a way that is moral and holy, we will be treating others the way we should. We will treat other people the way that we should. Look at verse 6. I thought this was interesting that Paul put this in there. And I, I scratched my head a little bit first. But he's, he's continuing on from this his, his, his original statement in verse 3, This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now, each of these successive verses have, have explained or further amplified what he means by that. And so he, when he comes to verse 6, he also is adding, So that none of you transgress or wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. None of you transgress or wrong his brother in these in this matter. I scratched my head a little bit when I saw that he brought that up because I thought, what does this have to do with other people here? We're talking about sin in our own lives. What is he talking about wronging our brothers? But we've said right from the very beginning of this series that one of the excuses that we might be tempted to use as we think about getting comfortable or cozy with sin is that I'm not hurting anybody. What's the big deal? What's, how does my gluttony hurt anybody? How, how, how does my, my, my anger hurt anybody? How, how, does, how does my worry hurt anybody? Come on. This is just between me and God. Just let me deal with it here. But we've said also from the very beginning that sin always has ripple effects. When I throw a pebble into a, a smooth, glassy pond, those ripples go forth from that one little splash and they keep resonating sin will too. No matter if, if you think nobody sees, no matter if what you think, how, how personal you think that sin is, how, how much you think you've boxed it in and closed it off, it will have ripple effects and it will affect other people in your life. And that includes sexual immorality. Paul brings up this topic, he says, so that none of you transgress or wrong his brother in this matter for several reasons. First of all, Sexual immorality harms the person because you are making them complicit in breaking God's law. If you choose to, to sleep with your boyfriend or girlfriend before marriage, you are, you are bringing them along in your sinful behavior. You are making them complicit in being disobedient to God's law. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, if I knew I was going to get in trouble, it always made me feel better to have other people in it with me. So that when I, if I did get caught, if I did get in trouble, the, the wrath and fury was not solely directed on me. It was dispersed a little bit. Well, that's a little bit what's, what's happening here is that, that, when, that when we choose to behave immorally, we're, we're bringing at least one other person into the, 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 the sin with us. And the verse makes it clear that, that God takes this seriously because the Lord is an avenger. It's not a reference to a superhero movie. The Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. This is a big deal. The other reason that it affects other people is because it harms the body of Christ. Even though we might think of ourselves as a, as a little island, a little, little sinning island, it, it doesn't work that way. Sin eventually affects those around you in the christian community i 've seen broken marriages and, 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 and sinful lifestyles that have have torn apart small groups or or, or destroyed Sunday school or relationships in the church that that, that that would have been fine if it had not been for that sin that began to drive a wedge as people took sides with him and her and Sin harms the body of Christ. And finally, if you're married, it greatly harms your family. It, it, it harms your spouse, your children, your extended family. And so, Paul brings this to the forefront as just one of the reasons that we need to abstain from sexual immorality because it harms those around you. Now, maybe you're out there thinking, you're not going to say this out loud, but you think, well, my problem's porn, and, and that's, that's not hurting anybody. My wife doesn't know, my friends don't know, what's the big deal? It's just, just some pictures on the computer screen. Let me read you this newspaper article, it's a 2015 article from the Huffington Post, which is no, by no means a, a conservative source of, of news, but I thought this was really interesting. It said, for decades, pornography has been praised as the epitome of freedom of expression by men and at times women alike. However, as time goes on, social conservatives and feminists alike, as well as various media outlets and academic organizations, are coming to agree that not only does pornography harm individuals and families, but is also a major factor in the underground sex slave industry. Listen to, this, listen to these numbers. In 2007, a study was done and they they studied and and met with 854 women in nine countries and found that 49% of women said that pornography had been made of them while they were in prostitution and 47% said they had been harmed by men who had either forced or tried to force their victims to do things the men had seen in porn. In other words, when Americans watch pornography, they're fooled into thinking they're watching free men and women engaging in free activities. Contrary to the popular image of the porn industry, many women are being forced to have sex, be groped, kicked, beaten, etc., against their will. Listen, men, if you think, and I speak primarily to men, but I realize not only men, if you think that pornography is a harmless activity and no one's getting hurt, think again. There is no reason, or there, there, there's. It's, it, there's, it's, it's completely clear through the statistics why the use of pornography and the, the amount of sex trafficking have both risen together in the last 20 or 30 years. There's a reason that those two lines are going up together on the graph. Because the amount of pornography that has flooded the market is directly corresponds with the abuse that have been heaped upon millions of women around the world. Sin always, always, always has consequences. Whether we're talking about immorality, whether we're talking about living a lifestyle of worry, of gluttony, of, of anger, of impatience and irritability, these seemingly small things, listen, they always have ripple effects. And immorality is, is no exception to that rule. Finally, as we think about why we should abstain from immorality, from this passage, the last one is when you do that, you don't brush off God. You don't simply disregard God's word. When you choose to obey his word and his plan for you, then you are not just shrugging God off. Look at verse 8. Whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Listen, I'm fine if you don't want to listen to what I have to say, okay? It's, I'm not going to go cry myself to sleep tonight. But please, please listen to God. When the Creator of the universe speaks, we need to listen. And if my words are not His words, then disregard what I'm saying. But He says if you blow off God's plan for more, your, your morality, then you are simply looking at God and saying, nah. I don't need you. I'm not going to listen to you. We've all probably gotten advice from people that we, we thought, "What are you talking about?" And you knew right off the bat you weren't going to pay attention to them. Maybe it was that 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 single guy who was giving you parenting and marriage advice, or maybe that was somebody who who had like financial ruin in their life and they're trying to give you financial advice. And you think, "Why am I going to listen to you? Why why would I pay attention to you? Don't know anything about what you're talking about." Listen. Don't do that with God. God knows what He's talking about. He loves us, and He has our best interest in mind. God is not saying, just live this way so I can have control over your life. Just live this way so you can be miserable. and, and, and No, he, he, has, he has our very best interest in mind, and He knows that the, the sexual union designed for a marriage relationship between a husband and a wife is the very best way for things to be. And so he says, just listen to me. Will you trust me here? and Take a step of faith and do things the, the way that I want you to do them. We step outside of that. We're in a sense telling God, listen, I, I don't need your outdated ideas on morality. I don't, I don't, I don't care what you have to say. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live my way. But when we choose to follow God's design, we're not living in a way that we just brush Him off. So what happens, though, if you're in the middle of this and you're sitting out there thinking, Pastor, if you saw my heart, if you saw my lifestyle, you know I'm struggling in this area. Listen, I'm not preaching through this passage just so that we can all collectively feel bad about ourselves. God, God never takes us to a, a place of realization about our sin and just leaves us there. It's always for the purpose of redeeming us, of bringing us back to himself. Okay, you're convicted. Okay, your spirit's been moved. Now, I want to change you. Now, I want to help you live a holy life. There are three, three things I wrote down that I think can help us in the midst of our struggle, our battle against lust. The first thing is to flee at first sight. Flee at first sight. Don't give it a second thought. Don't chew on it. Don't marinate it. Don't consider it for a little while. Get away as fast as you can. One of the things that I really enjoy, and and i I think that I've used a food illustration in about every message in this series, so maybe I need to go back to the gluttony message and listen to that one again. But one of the things I really enjoy, my parents, my, I would, would get these about once a year during maple, uh, maple syrup time, is those little maple sugar candies, you ever had those things? They're just pure maple syrup, they're just, I mean, pure maple syrup, they're just incredible. And uh, and I remember that we used to each get one, they'd, get, they'd be like a little package of four or something, we'd get one of these things. I just remember putting that in my mouth and I would just let it, just savor it. I was committed not to bite down on it or chew it, I just going you know, to let that thing melt in my mouth and enjoy that. Oh, just savored it as long as I possibly could. You know, some of us do the same thing with sin. We're going to just get as close as we can with it and, and, and toy around with it and savor it and think about it and consider it and we know we probably shouldn't, but listen, the Bible tells us, look at this verse in Second uh, 2 Timothy 2.22. It says, flee youthful passions. Plants, turn and run. And, and God's calling us not just to run from sin, but we remember we've said this all along. God calls us not just to run away from something, but to someone. We're running from sin and to Him. So He says, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness and faith and love and peace along with all those who call on the Lord. From a pure heart. So, the first thing we need to do is flee at first sight. The second thing we need to do is fight. Flee at first sight and fight with the truth. Fight with the truth. Second thing we need to do is understand what God's word has to say about our sin and and wield God's word. Wield the sword of the Lord in our battle against sin. Fight. With the truth, one of the truths we need to remember is that these desires that we're having, they're all lies. You see, our enemy wants us to think that we're going to be better off if we give in, that, that don't you really just want to do this, and won't you be so much happier and, and, and you'll experience things that you've never experienced before? Our enemy's a big, rotten liar. His whole job is to deceive us. And he convinces us with these desires that we'll be happier if we give in to them. I love what Paul says in Ephesians 4.22. He says, put off your old self, your old way of living, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through what? Through deceitful desires. These these desires are deceitful. They're not going to deliver what they promise. You're not going to get out of them what you think you're going to get. Satan wants us to believe that life will be better, and we don't really see the whole big picture of sin's ugliness. He shields that from our view. I read a story recently that Ravi Zacharias told about the journalist Malcolm Mudridge. Malcolm Mudridge was working on assignment in India, and he left his residence one evening to go to a nearby river for a swim. As he entered the water across the river, he saw an Indian woman from a nearby village who had come to have her bath. Mugridge impulsively felt the allurement of the moment, and temptation stormed his mind. He had lived with this kind of struggle for years, but had somehow fought it off in honor of his commitment to his wife, Kitty. On this occasion, however, he wondered if he could cross the line of marital fidelity. He struggled for just a moment, and then swam furiously across the river, literally trying to outdistance his conscience. His mind fed him the fantasy that stolen waters would be sweet, and he swam the harder for it. Now he was just two or three feet away from her, and as he emerged from the water, any emotion that may have gripped him paled into insignificance when compared with the devastation that shattered him as he looked at her. He wrote, She was old and hideous, and her skin was wrinkled, and worst of all, she was a leper. This creature grinned at me, showing a toothless mask. The experience left Mugridge trembling and wondering under his breath, muttering under his breath, What an awful filthy woman. But then the rude shock of it dawned upon him. It was not the woman who was filthy, it was his own heart. We can be easily led astray thinking that, that what lies before us is, is, is what will make us happy. Satan is, does a fantastic job of closing, clothing, of covering up the sin for what it really is. As Muggeridge realized, it wasn't the woman that he was looking on who was hideous, it was his own heart that he was seeing for the first time. We need to use God's word. We need to remind ourselves of what truth is in the moments of temptation. There's a great verse in Psalm 119.1 that says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I love that picture. That's why we put scripture verses in the bulletin every week for for us to just read and review and, and, and to hold close The psalmist said, I'm I'm storing them up. I've got them saved. Ideally, when you store something up, you're storing it for a purpose. And he knows that there were going to be times of temptation and he was going to need to pull certain scriptures off the shelf and use those in his fight against sin. We need to remember that God is far more delightful than anything that sin has to offer. Psalm 34.8 says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who who takes refuge in Him. We talked about fleeing. We talked about fighting with the truth. And then finally, we need to fall. We need to fall on our knees. We need to go before God and cry out to Him in dependence and express our need daily for His strength. First Chronicles 16.11 says, Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His presence continually. It needs to be a daily habit that we cultivate to go before God and say, God, you know I'm wrestling with this. I'm wrestling with my thought life. I want to go to the computer screen. I'm tempted to check this site or pull up this app. And God, you know where my temptations lie. I need your strength. And of course, there's so much more we could say. We could talk about accountability partners. We could talk about just cutting ourselves off from all, all use of, of technology if this problem is an ex- extreme issue. Showing showing your spouse all your texts and inviting other other believers to come into your life and check up on you and encourage you. There there are drastic measures. Whatever it needs to take to to get uncozy with sexual immorality, we need to be willing to do that. God is desperately concerned with our holiness, and we should be too. We shouldn't just brush this off like, yeah, I probably should do something about that. Read 1 Corinthians 6.9. Because God says that if we allow ongoing sin in our life that we don't care about, we're not going to deal with, we're just going to be okay with it, and sexual immorality is one in that list, He says our very eternity is at stake. We're not just talking about habits that we should refine a little bit. We're not just talking about little issues here and there. We're talking about soul-damning sin that if if we don't deal with it, Bible says we will not see God. As we've gone through this series, we've touched on a handful of topics. There's more that we could talk about, but I want to say this, though, as we close. If you have walked away from any of these messages and the series as a whole, and you are more captured by your sin than you are with Christ and I haven't done my job. You see, because, as I said before, whenever God takes us to the point of realizing our sin, of convicting us of our sin, it's never His will to leave us there. He doesn't just want to kick us to the curb and watch us wallow in pain and struggle and misery. But just like He did to the woman caught in adultery, He bends down. He reaches out and takes her hand, lifts her up, offers forgiveness. He says, now go and sin no more. If at any point in this series, you've been so weighed down with your sin, you felt like you had nowhere to go, that I haven't preached enough Christ. Because in those moments that we're most convicted of sin, the cross should loom the largest. And the work of Christ, the finished work of Christ on the cross is far greater than the worst of our sins. And if you're here today, and maybe maybe one of these messages has brought home some real areas of sin in your life, he said, I need to deal with that today. Here's the thing, that, that God freely offers forgiveness to those who go to Him and ask for it. Repentance is granted if you go and confess that sin. The Bible says God freely and faithfully forgives it. And so we go to Him and we trust in Christ as our Savior Believing that He paid the price for our sins on the cross, that He rose again, and that forgiveness can be ours. And that's the great, glorious news of the gospel. Grace that is greater than all my sin, as the old hymn says. In fact, I love the way that Charles Wesley put it. He wrote, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke. The dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That's my prayer for each and every one of us today. Let's, let's stop getting cozy with sin. Let's bring it before God, confess it, and enjoy the free forgiveness that our Savior offers. Let's pray. Oh, God. I'm so thankful for my Savior, Jesus Christ. God, I pray that every single person in this room would know him too. Lord, we talk about sin, not not so that we can make a room full of people feel bad, but because we know that you are so seriously interested in our holiness and in lives that honor and please you. And so, God, I grant I ask that you would grant that hearts would turn to you today and accept and receive that forgiveness. Accept the abundant life that Jesus promised, not bound in the shackles of sin, but free to obey and enjoy a life wide open with our Savior, Jesus Christ. God, I ask that you would be at work in hearts today to convict and to draw to your Son, God, just bless this, this time of fellowship out there with, with pizza and salad and, and, and lots of laughter. We just thank you for what you're going to do in our midst, Lord, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Make sure you go get something to eat. You're dismissed.